Religion in general and religious activity has been embraced and followed in one form or another by many people for centuries. Not only have people held near and dear to their respective religion, religion has also had big roles in sparking great conflicts. Today on Keeping It Real, we will expose religion for what it is by uprooting performance-based ideals in this final part, part five of the Killer Gods and Idols series. Somehow, the sentiments of being good enough or doing enough good got majorly popularized through centuries of human civilization. The belief systems of if I don't hurt anyone, if I go to church often enough, if I give enough to the poor or less fortunate, or if I serve greatly, somehow a person will be good to go, shall we say. While each of those practices certainly are admirable, the Bible gives a much different picture of what real faith looks like. What should the treatment be for man-made ideals, rules, and rituals? How does a legit ever-deepening faith in Christ differ from the prior-mentioned sentiments? All a definite worth finding out on this episode entitled, The God and Idol of Religiosity. Welcome to the Keeping It Real podcast. Only tired of fake stuff? Shouldn't we turn down a stale brand of living? It's time to open our hearts to Christ. It's time to keep it real. Here's your host, Ollie Gee. All right, welcome to another episode of the Keeping It Real podcast. I'm Ollie G, and today it's our final part, part five of the Killer Gods and Idols series. Thank you so much for all of you that have tuned in to every episode of this series thus far and for tuning in again today. If you've missed any of the episodes of this series, I greatly encourage you to go back and listen to those because it's really a combined unit of content. And really, the whole podcast uh, can be described that way and moving forward. All the episodes build on one another, all centering on Jesus Christ. So today, it's the God and idol of religiosity, and every religion is performance-based. That is, there is a works-centered, a works-emphasis of what it takes to gain favor with that religious figure or with that religion in general. Uh, In other words, someone will look at just the whole concept of trying to be good enough, doing enough good things, being nice enough to gain favor in the eyes of that religious leader or the leader of that particular religion. Not only is there a a performance emphasis, but there's also a great devotion or significant attachment typically to a physical structure, whether that be a temple, a church, a mosque, a synagogue, or some other gathering place that people within that religion gather at, that physical structure oftentimes is held in very high value or high esteem. So every religion is similar along these lines with the exception of one. One religion, if for lack of a better word, I wouldn't really describe it as a religion, more describe it more as a faith, and that is a legitimate faith in Jesus Christ or being all out, sold out follower of him. Why is that different, someone may ask, or how is that different? Well, for a couple of big reasons. One is when someone gives their life over to Christ, they accept him as their personal savior, and he changes them on the inside. They receive his spirit living on the inside, and they are able to carry out or live out a divine life. And that is made possible through Christ being risen from the grave. He conquered death. Every other religion, their leader has died. They are dead. Uh, they, they, they did not conquer death. Christ gained victory over the grave. Hence, that's 
why we would celebrate Easter, or that's the meaning of Easter. So that's number one difference. The other difference is, is that the religious writing or the the writing that is authoritative, that governs the Christian faith, known as the Bible, is divinely inspired. It claims to be divinely inspired. It is divinely inspired or it has to be divinely inspired because there are no inconsistencies. There are no errors within the volume of the Bible. There do contain inconsistencies in other all the other religious writings and documents. So those are two, two distinct differences. And when someone gets captured by Christ, they are captured by his grace and his love. Okay, Grace being receiving what we don't deserve, and then we receive his love, which is an eternal and everlasting love not just an emotional feeling, not just a sentiment or some kind of concept. It is an eternal love. In fact, the Bible describes him as the one who is love. So this all begins through the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. And Jesus went to the cross voluntarily and willingly to die in our place, to shed his precious blood so that our sins could be paid for, that is, our sin debt could be paid for, that when we ask him or come to him in a spirit of forgiveness, genuine repentant forgiveness or pleading for forgiveness, he does indeed forgive, forgive us of all of our sins. So man-made rules or rituals will suck a person dry, but truly knowing Christ and experiencing him ever more deeply brings life. Now, a worshiper of religiosity will, there will be two things that a worshiper of religiosity carries out. They live out these two principles. Before we get into those principles, I'm going to read to you passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 23. This is our core passage for this edition of the podcast today. Again, Matthew 23 and beginning in verse 25, I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. All right. So first off, a worshiper of religiosity exercises theft of goods and services. Who Jesus is talking to here is, of course, very important. The people that he is he is engaging, he, he is engaging with, he is proclaiming some very bold and fresh and hardcore truths to these groups of people known as the scribes and Pharisees. They were considered the religious leaders of that day. If someone had a spiritual question or an inquiry, particularly, of course, if they were Jewish, because these are of Jewish origin or Jewish heritage, they would come to the Pharisees to get some sort of answer, guidance, in particular on the law. The Pharisees were big on religious law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the, the Old Testament law, the, the Torah, it is called uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament. 
So Jesus comes to them. Now, he has mentioned a number of other things prior to the verses that I read to you. He talks to them earlier and he he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, in verse 14. In verse 16, he says, woe to you, blind guides. And then he says in verse 17, fools and blind. So he's got harsh language for these people. Again, in verse 19, he says, fools and blind. And in verse 23, he says again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So we get to verse 25, where I began reading. And if the Pharisees hadn't gotten it yet, they're going to get it. And I'm sure that they did get it. And I'm sure that they were, they had ants in their pants. I'm sure they were squirming. I'm sure they were angry. I'm sure that they were not taking this well. So we got to understand who Jesus is talking to. He's not just talking to some, you know, just ordinary people or, you know, just some person that regularly walks the street or, you know, for lack of a better phrase, an ordinary Joe. He is talking to the religious leaders about spiritual things. And he starts off in verse 25 with where we're looking at by talking to them in this manner. He says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. First off, what are these objects about? Why does Jesus mention a cup and a dish? Well, they were staples for mealtime. And mealtime was really big back then. Now, nowadays, mealtime has been devalued in a number of different ways. Uh, We live in this rush-rush society. We are constantly, especially here in America, we are constantly on the go. We're we're always running late or we're running behind. We're late to take the kids to practice. A lot of times we're late to get to church or we're late to get to to work. We're we're, we're always rushing. We're, we're, We're scrambling to get to someplace on time or we're rushing to get a lot of things done or errands done. And we're looking to try and keep up in this fast-paced world, in this fast-paced life that we find ourselves in the middle of. And so what do we do with meals a lot of times? We're rushing. We're, we're looking at just, we're thankful if we have leftovers to heat up and we just do that real quick, or we make something on the quicker side, or worse yet, we just can the whole idea of eating together at the dining room table or a kitchen table, and we just go fast food. Through the McDonald's drive-through line we go because we're out of time or we're running short on time. Well, back then, mealtime was a staple. They, they First of all, they didn't have any of those things. Obviously, microwaves, fast food places, they were long non-existent. And mealtime was a, was a sacred time for folks. Um, sacred in the sense that they valued gathering together. And not just, uh, a lot of times, not just the immediate family. People would gather together. There would be big groups of people gathering together, oftentimes for mealtime. And it was this big thing. And so the cup and the dish that Jesus uses as a bit of an object lesson here, he uses these items because he knows that the Pharisees, for sure, can connect with this very simple concept back then. Okay, So he uses the cup and the the dish as connection pieces. And he says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So what does Jesus mean here? He's saying that no way, no how would you, especially in your prestigious position of being a Pharisee or a scribe, I mean, these people are not poor that he's talking to, uh, comparatively speaking to a number of other folks, 
no way would you use a cup or a dish if it's dirty on the inside. You wouldn't just look for it to be shiny on the outside or make sure it's looking right or presentable on the outside. The inside's clean too. There's no way you're going to pour water into a dirty cup and then drink it. You would find that unacceptable. You would find that just not tolerant, not being able to tolerate that. So Jesus talks to them no, in a way that you wouldn't tolerate having an inside of the dish dirty to drink something like water, but yet you are so tolerant in being having your outward appearance look shiny, look presentable, look flashy, like everyone's coming to you for answers, but on the inside, you're filthy. He says, you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So to put this another way, Jesus says, you are taking time, talent, and treasures for yourself only. That's what extortion is. Extortion is, right, basically a, a way of stealing, a way of taking something that's not really yours. And he tells the Pharisees, while you may not literally be committing theft in the sense that you're going into somebody else's home or you're stealing somebody else's property, you are stealing from others by taking your time, your talent, and the treasures that you've been gifted with and using it for yourself only. You are full, he says, on the inside, that is in your heart, you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You're taking it for yourself only. You're not considering others. You don't really care about others. You're only caring about how you are viewed by others. And so what does this do? It ultimately robs God of glory. That is the harshest part of this. Because while they think or they are acting like putting on the front, like they are giving God all his glory with their religious activity, going to the synagogue all the time, praying a bunch of times, and possibly giving some of their money to the poor. Jesus says, you are really using your time, your talent, and your treasures for self-indulgence and because your heart is full of extortion. You're doing it totally for you. You have set yourself up as your own God. And again, this is part where I encourage everybody, if you haven't listened to the very first message, which is the foundational message of this Killer Gods and Idol series, greatly encourage you to listen to The Idol in the Mirror, which is, again, very foundational to this whole series and foundational to the points we're making here. So there's this robbing God of his glory. Jesus makes a big time inner emphasis in this passage. And again, in verse 25, he says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion. Also, he says in verse 27, when he goes, talks about the whitewashed tombs, I don't want to get into that in depth quite yet. That's going to come up here in a little bit in the future of this episode. But he says, you appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones. Verse 28. But inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So there's an inner emphasis. An inner, Paul described it as the inner man in, in the book of Ephesians. It's the heart. It's that part on the inside of you where either righteousness or wickedness is stored. It's that part on the inside of you where either Christ reigns or a worldly system reigns supreme. So there's an inner emphasis here. 
And there's a value of a divine working. Again, to to support or reemphasize my intro where I spoke about how there is a divine life that is possible through faith in Christ. And that is the only religion that's different from all the other religions. There is a value of an inner divine working. And a worldly religious system operates backwards. And a worldly system says, perform. Keep performing, working hard, keep doing good deeds, do enough good deeds, and then you might get well on the inside. No, Christ makes us well on the inside, and then his love and his spirit motivates us and gives us the ability and the opportunities to do good in the sense where we're serving him. So a worldly religious system operates it backwards. A kingdom-hearted person shares what they have, more specifically, who they have. That is, they have Christ. They have a relationship with him. Let's take a popular concept as giving unto others. A kingdom-hearted person considers those in need. But it's not just giving, not just aimlessly giving to somebody else because we feel bad for them or we feel sorry for them or we want to make ourselves look good. They consider those in need in ways that are that are kingdom oriented. They consider when they need it, what they need, how they need it, and they consider it in such a way where Christ is continually in view. It's not just giving to them to make their lives better, to make their lives easier, or just to encourage them. It is giving unto them, whether if it's time, talents, or treasures, it is giving unto them with the purpose of proclaiming Christ, reflecting Christ, revealing Christ to them in the hopes that they will see him. If it's another believer, chances are they're going to see Christ and they're going to be encouraged as a result of being encountered by Christ through the representation of a child or a group of children of his that are looking to benefit them and give unto them. If it's an unbeliever, the goal would be, or the hope would be, should I say, is that they would get confronted with Christ and see their need for him, that through this act or through this display of love, they would have no other course of reasoning or no other conclusion to come to other than to say, this has to be something divine. Okay, now I need to know about this Jesus that this person is living for, that they've talked to me about, or that they have followed ever so passionately. I know that this can't be just some religion, religious act, some religion concept, the performance-based thing, because they are considering the timing. They're considering me. They are so into me. They want to help me. And th- there's something divine about this. It's just like it just came at the right time. The right amount came. The substance of what came was completely perfect. They come to no other conclusion other than the fact that it's got to be divine working. So a worshiper of religiosity exercises theft of goods and services because they don't think about the kingdom. They're, they don't have the kingdom in front of them. They're not considering the kingdom of God. They're only considering themselves and what makes them look good, which is why Jesus says, you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Life's all about them is basically what he proclaimed to the Pharisees. It wasn't just the Pharisees. That is true of a whole slew of folks all throughout history, including in our current time. We have an entire culture that feasts off of self-indulgence. What can I get? How easily can I get it? How quickly can I get it? 
How will it benefit me? It's all about me, me, me. And again, we live in this culture of meism that has absolutely swept through and permeated our culture so much so, particularly here in the West. Well, not only is a worshiper of religiosity exercising theft of goods and services, they are also accepting membership of the walking dead. Now it's really going to start getting sticky, okay? I know there's a hit TV sh show series that's been out for the last number of years called The Walking Dead, and why anybody would really want to watch that, I'm not really sure. But at any rate, that's been a hit TV show. And if you look at the advertisements for that show, it's basically a bunch of it's a bunch of morbid looking people, almost like mummies walking around that chase after the people that are quote unquote not dead. So Jesus says this, he, he transitions from an everyday illustration of the cup and dish that he was talking to the Pharisees about in verse 25. He now transitions just a couple of verses later to when a situation when life is over. Okay, the cup and the dish at mealtime used every day of life. Now he goes into the scene or the scenario when this life is over. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Whitewashed tombs, he says. They look pretty on the outside back then. They're kind of compared to our modern day casket. Any of you have had to prepare for any kind of funeral or funeral arrangements, you will know that they can be somewhat pricey. And the biggest expense of a funeral by far is the casket. The average casket costs anywhere between two and $5,000. Now to a lot of folks, that's a big chunk of change. And these things cost a lot of money because of how they're made, the material that they're made with, and the appearance of them. They have this grandiose appearance. This is kind of like the grand finale before the body gets buried in the earth. This is to put them in something nice, something presentable, something that is attractive for when people come to a viewing and ultimately are there for a funeral. Not that a funeral is an, an inviting time or an attractive time. It's, it's, a it's a time of hurt. It's a time of despondency, typically. But it's designed, the casket has a design to try and minimalize that to some degree uh, instead of in just some really nasty looking box or a very uh, unclean looking type of thing. So the whitewashed tomb is like today's casket. Well, there's an identity crisis, first of all, for anybody that is not in Christ. If you're listening to this and you've not accepted uh, Jesus Christ is your personal savior. You're not a follower of Christ. You don't know Christ. You're not someone that knows him. You're not connected to him relationally. You have an, an identity crisis. You are like the dead man's bones, or you are dead man's bones in essence, that is walking around. Now you're living, you're breathing, you're able to see and to talk and to walk and what have you, but you lack life. Not only do you not have eternal life, you have no kind of abundant life or no substantive life that Jesus describes in other places in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. There is an identity crisis. Jesus says that the Pharisees were looking beautiful outwardly. They were like whitewashed tombs. He uses a metaphor here. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. 
and you appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. Now, this is really harsh language for these Pharisees because if anybody believed that they had it going on, there were a lot of people, I'm sure, back in that, even back in that time, that they thought that they were right with the Lord or that they were good to go or that they were okay, spiritually speaking. But if anybody thought that, it would have been this group of people. It would have been the Pharisees. And Jesus is telling them, not only are you not okay, you are dead. You are like the walking dead. You are filled with dead men's bones, he says. You are filled with all uncleanness. He is be- he is not mincing words. He is taking dead aim at them in the sense that he's taking dead, a- dead aim at their lives. He's taking dead aim at their legalistic way of living, their performance-based life. And he says it's lifeless. It has no substance to it. And this is exactly what worshipers of the God of religiosity are after. There's a bunch of man-made rules and rituals, and they leave a person sucked dry. But truly knowing Christ and experiencing him ever more deeply is what brings life. Serving a religion, living out religious rituals, and living out rules that a religion mandates or a religion puts down upon a group of people, it leaves a person dry. It leaves them sub- substantless. It leaves them lifeless. And this is what programmed or a laying out of religious activity does. It doesn't produce anything good. Uh, I mean, I've observed this. I've seen, I've been in all kinds of different services, uh, religious services. And people are no different from the time they walked in to the time they walked out of a particular service not only for a particular service, but service after service, meeting after meeting, week after week, year after year, no change. There's no change because there's no Christ. There's no living Lord to change them. It is only man-made ideals and rules that are promoted in such a way that they're looking for those things to change them, but there's there's nothing divine to them. There's no life in them. There is an identity crisis, and then there's this membership of the walking dead means that there's a membership of an established order. And listen, folks, uh, even for those of you that are listening to this and you are in Christ, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, but you're someone that is a part of religious activity. Say you go to church, an institutional church, week after week. To, first of all, become a member of that church, it always puzzled me. It mystified me how someone needs to go through one of two things, one of two processes in order to become a member there. Either A, they need to go through a membership class. They need to take a class uh, that usually stretches out over several weeks in order to become a member. Or someone needs to go to that particular location for several weeks, usually months, if not years, in order to be considered a member. Well, I don't see that anywhere uh, in the New Testament. I don't see that practice. I don't see that promoted anywhere in the scriptures. So we have this membership of an established order. Even now it's been, or it has been for centuries adopted by quote unquote Bible believing churches. And there are other practices that have been adopted as well. Now these are not, weren't from the beginning. These got it started with Constantine and church history and they were promoted or they evolved from that time. And that is, think of some other practices. 
the formulation of a church bulletin. Usually when you show up at a church service, even at a quote unquote Bible believing service, you're going to get a bulletin. And in that bulletin is a list of what's going to happen within the service. When a song is going to get sung and then another song might get sung. And then when the offering is going to be taken and when the sermon's going to be given and when a testimony might be given or shared. And then there might be another singing of a song and then there's the benediction and then the church service is over. So there's the bulletin, there's a worship team, whether if it's those playing instruments or a choir or just a, a, a group of people that are more gifted at singing than others, or then there's a sermon, usually the pastor gives that, or, and then there's an offering that's taken, where offering plate gets passed around, ushers bring a plate by and you're to throw money in there, or really a tithe, 10, which means 10% should go into that plate to support the efforts of that local uh, institution. Well, I just listed four different things. There are many more that I could get into, but those, what do those, all of those concepts have in common? None of them are found in the New Testament. I can't imagine the Apostle Paul visiting any of his churches that he wrote letters to, whether it be at Thessalonica or at Galatia or, or even at Rome, and him stepping foot into one of their meetings, their gatherings, and him getting a bulletin. I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine that there would be some more gifted people that will call them first-class Christians that get to speak and get to preach and get to sing, and then everybody else is flying coach. They are just to be quiet and just to listen or look at somebody, look at the back of somebody's head for an hour and a half and then go home. I also can't imagine there being an offering taking place. Like this is where we collected the money. And then we're going to use this money to build another, to, to build a building or build another building or buy a curriculum. I can't imagine Paul running into that. In fact, we see this quite clearly that that didn't happen because in the, in the book of Acts, we read that the people met in homes. It says that they met from house to house and these people shared life together. It was all like one big, incredibly happy family. They they treated each other and viewed each other as like family because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And whenever somebody had need, they would sell off possessions or they would give of their possessions to the people that had need. They would pray together. They would eat together. They shared life together. And such beautiful expressions of the body of Christ are there in the book of Acts and also within Paul's letters and how he described how the believers oftentimes would be devoted to one another and how they would love him and how he would love them, even though he was loving them from afar oftentimes because he couldn't get there because his life was being threatened or he was in jail. So, and I wonder about this whole concept of needing to gather together. People, I've, I've oftentimes gotten the critique to when I get on this subject and go, well, what about gathering together? Book of Hebrews says that we are to gather together and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It doesn't say where did we are to gather together. It doesn't say how, it doesn't say when, it doesn't say anything about the gathering. It just says for us to gather together. And that's the concept of the ecclesia, which is the Greek word for a meeting or a gathering. These folks gathered together whenever they could in people's homes and people would all get, it would be open sesame. They, these homes would be wide open for people to come and share and to hang out. Everybody else's home was like their home. It wasn't like, well, we got to 
call ahead or we've got to knock or we've got to make sure it's okay that we're invited in. I mean, these people just were in each other's homes like it was their own home. So Christ, and that's the kind of expression of the body of Christ that is life-giving, it is life-sharing, it is so fulfilling because it's filled with life, Christ's life, his power. So this is where this series ends up and where this episode of the podcast ends up because while man-made rules or rituals suck a person dry, truly knowing Christ and experiencing him ever more deeply is what brings life. He's the one that brings life. Followers of the way. Again, that's the way how they were described in the New Testament. They they were described as followers of the way and Jesus being the way. John chapter 14 says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the characteristics were they had an open door policy. They met in homes and they shared life. Now, nowadays, whether you could meet at a park, you could meet at a cafe, you could meet in a bunch of different places where the body of Christ can express Christ in very real and powerful and practical ways. Frank Viola calls it the organic expression of the church. I kind of call it more as the identity of this network, that being called keeping it real. I call it, I call it keeping it real way of meeting where people can share, but the body of Christ is getting together. Not one person is viewed higher than another person. Not one person is viewed as a first-class Christian and other believers that are there, other brothers and sisters that are there flying coach. I would envision, I crave to envision a modern-day church, and I know that this is a very difficult concept to even comprehend because we are so used to going to our buildings that have steeples and as great as many of them look and how wonderfully made many of them are, it is the system that is there. There is a religious system that's in place that looks a lot like the world. It is adopted worldly practices instead of a complete allowing of Christ to have center stage, where instead, if there's this organic expression of the church, a keeping it real expression of the church, where folks gather together, brothers and sisters gather together to share with one another. If someone has need, if Susie, who's a mother of four kids, a single mom of four kids, whose home burned down and she lost most of her things, all of a sudden the other believers within that town or within that city that know Susie are giving a TV, they are giving furniture, they're giving food, they're 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 coming into her home showing her love and then she in turn is coming to Billy's house where they're gathering together a few days later and they're worshiping together and praising the Lord together that that they've that the Lord has provided a means for her and her children to get back on their feet again that's just one example how about other examples how about a new believer? Johnny has come to faith in the Lord after a life of abusing alcohol and been on drugs. And now he gets radically transformed through a great modeling of life of a local body of believers, or maybe just even a local Christian there that's a part of a body of believers. And instead of going to an institutional setting, there's just this mundane, this superficial. Again, we had a prior podcast episode called Moving Beyond Superficial, where there's there's no power. It's diluted of it of Christ's power, instead of going to to that outfit, he's being invited to an outfit where he's able to share. He's able to praise the Lord right away on the spot with those group of people of what God has done for him. He's able to hear what God has done for the other believers. And 
in that meeting, in that gathering for years, and they get encouraged. They pray with one another. They eat together. They have the Lord's Supper together. That is what I would envision. That's what I believe happened back in the New Testament, and that's what I would envision for today. Unfortunately, it is tuned out. It is turned off a lot of times. It is greatly resisted because we are so used to continuing to roll the way we've rolled for centuries. Doing things within the name of tradition are very hard to break. Even though there are quote-unquote Bible-believing churches, a lot of practices are adopted from religion, religious practices that are outside of Christ. The difference is, is that at least there are references to Christ made, there are references to the gospel made, and certainly praise God for someone or people that have an opportunity to come to know Christ in those settings. But dare I say that there, there could be so much more, so much more powerful, so much more riveting, so much more captivating as a result of gathering together as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, as it's laid out in the New Testament. Paul told the church at Corinth, you are God's field. You are God's building. He's speaking to the people, not a set of architectural structures. He's talking to the people and letting them know you are God's flock. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are in Christ. So this is where we are, and I'm hoping that this Killer Gods and Idols series has been an, a blessing to you. It's my hope that the Lord has used it to be of conviction to you and for you to really contemplate and meditate on some things on if you're listening, if you have been in Christ, to really pursue him on these things, search the scriptures on these things, and see if there's a way that your walk with the Lord can grow ever more stronger as you look to press into him all the more, get ever more deeper in the things of God and ultimately in Christ himself. And if you've been listening to this series and actually made it through all five episodes as an unbeliever, and maybe you've come to faith in Christ somewhere along the way, I greatly encourage you to to drop me a line, drop me that praise report on kirradio.com. I would love to hear about it, join you in praising God for it. And if maybe you're still un, uh, still an unbeliever, you're still not sure about some things, you're seeking your mull, you're seeking some things out, you're mulling some things over. God's working you over, but you haven't quite come to the foot of the cross just yet. And if you've got questions, you've got inquiries, again, kirradio.com. Drop me your questions. Let me know your wonderings so that I can pray for you and and lo hopefully lovingly respond to you. And we can actually have a connection that way as well. So greatly encourage you to keep, stay tuned for upcoming podcast episodes as my conversation partners are rocking and rearing to go. They've had a break here. They're going to be coming back on and they're going to be a great blessing for your listening ear.